Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Brad Bethune, Rich Klein. Dueling questions, Brad's calling the shots. Thanks, sponsors. Top Spinini Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, ComC.com, and Beckett Media. Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Question number one. Favorite new set, each of you, every single year? Although I think I know Rich's, but... Every well, you year. do know mine because it's Heritage. <laughs> I mean, that's a given because Heritage... Especially now, Heritage is in the sweet spot in the last few years of my youth. So now that they're getting the modern treatment of the cards I grew up with and the cards I sorted so much of and bought so many collections of. So to me, every year I see Heritage, it's a real joy to see it. Probably same for me. I like any kind of archive or Heritage consideration. It evokes my youth. It doesn't mean I don't like Upper Deck products or Panini products, but... uh... You know, I'm a traditionalist. And the other thing I will point out with Heritage is Topps does a really good job. If you go deep, you will see a lot of times they'll mimic poses yeah, or they'll put the symbolism and different or the things, symbolism yeah. or they'll put the same number card like inside jokes. Yeah, or yes. One year Jorge Posada was card number three sixty in twenty eleven Heritage. Yogi Berra was three sixty in sixty two Tops. That's just mm-hmm. one example. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it that way, you really get a better appreciation. I remember I was in Triple the day that year came out, and everybody there was breaking and said, "Wow, wait a second! Now I'm getting a real appreciation. Now I see why they're doing that." Okay, it All shows right. there was some thought to it. I think that's great. Tops was the first one to strategically number with the divisible by ten, one hundred fifty, all that stuff, and that was a, a cool thing for me as a kid. You knew if you had card number 500, it's usually going to be a really good player. Yeah. Okay. Favorite Christmas sports card memory? What would be your favorite? Rich, you go first. How about the year you gave out cards as you dressed up and signed to Santa Claus? Yes. Yes. That is blowing the whistle. That is too much information. (laughs) There was a Santa Claus card. It was signed by Santa. It's a very scarce card. And let's just leave it at that. That was not fair. I've seen that card, actually. It's on the wall, too. I happen to have one copy left. It's actually a pretty scarce card. I can get you a second one. (laughs) I'd like a second one if you have. It's mine. No, I don't want to take yours. (laughs) Can I tell you what price I saw it at? Would you be embarrassed to know what the price was? Only if it's a low price. For my pocketbook, my $1 pocketbook, I I saw it for $75. It wasn't graded, but it was raw at $75. Wow. Yeah, I saw I was it. in the wrong business. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it in a card shop. I won't say which one. But was it signed? Because very few of them were signed. It was signed. It was by Santa. It said, said Santa. I don't know what happened, but it was That's a. If it wasn't signed by Santa, it's not authentic. There's a bunch of Santa Claus collectors out there. I know that at least yeah. one person from National each year oh, asks, uh, asks Tops about doing a Christmas set and getting Santa cards. Yeah, hey, ruined my, this year, too. Hey. It ruined my day. Okay, <laughs> so I'm going to be looking through... See if I've got any extra Santa Claus cards and of the Beckett. At the same year, we also had, I believe, or it could have been a different year, the Super Fan signed card. Oh, yeah. I did talk to Scott about that. I think his identity can be revealed yes. this time. But he took it pretty seriously. He a was lot very more good. than the Santa Claus guy did. He was very good at that. He really came alive. That's right. I actually have that card on my wall. You should. I put it on the yeses. Because okay. I have another card of him that's a game used. Oh, okay. Yeah. I only have the Hackler game used from that set. I have that one too. They're on my wall. Okay, my favorite memory is Christmas 1959. I got my dad's cards. Yeah. We were Christmas with our grandparents, all five of us kids and my parents, and, and my grandmother went up the attic and brought down this, kind of like a shoebox. It was probably three or 400 cards. 
God, he's in play balls. Probably 400. Doesn't get any better than that. Now, they probably wow. were worth about 40 bucks at the time. Probably worth about a dime a piece. Now they're worth, I don't even want to put on the public record what they're worth. <laughs> Let's just they say were in the, perfect condition. The Gaudis were a little rougher when my dad was a little boy. The play balls were a little nicer. Let's just say they're worth a decent amount of money. They're worth a dec- an indecent amount to my dad, I yeah. think. Yeah. And okay, Christmas memories, positive, except for the Santa Claus. Okay. <laughs> All right. Your favorite random act of kindness, so favorite rack given to you and you gave to somebody else. Last year, I ran the Net 54 Secret Santa because nobody was stepping up and I knew I had several days off that I could devote a few hours every week to it. So I will run it. One of the people in the group contacted Leon Lucky, the moderator and owner of Net54 to get my address to send me a 1910 Columbia schedule. Awesome. So that was like, that's wonderful. And I stayed out of it. I didn't. So it's still a secret. You don't know who it was? I know exactly who it was. Oh, okay. okay. But I was like, he didn't have to do that. I just wanted to do that to be, hey, this is how I'm going to do this. I'm not, I'm staying out of it. I ran into trouble once. I didn't give somebody enough and it was on me. And I said, I'm not giving any gifts. I'm just running this. And there was one person I got the wrong thing. We fixed that. But this person made sure I got taken care of and I didn't ask for anything. I just wanted to do it. And that to me was super kind. Was it premeditated? Did he find it and then realize, hey, this belongs, he knew I me, need to get this He met me and Lou Lipset in 1998 at the 1999 at the Sabre convention. He lived okay. in Arizona. Okay. We went, Lou had better tickets than the Sabre group. So we saw Randy Johnson strike out 14 batters and give up two hits that night. Only problem was Jose Jimenez decided that would be a good night to pitch a no-hitter. So I got to see a no-hitter in person as part of the Sabre convention. So that's like a great thing. And years later, the person who organized the Sabre convention was working at Bank of America, like I in a lower level. We talk about it every two or three months on Instant Messenger just to say hi and ask what was going on with various Sabre stuff. So it's a really good memory all the way around. Very cool. So random in some respects, but thoughtful and purposeful and focused on what you would like. Those are the best kind of gifts when somebody knows what you really want. It's right behind your head, what I'm talking about. Oh. It's the Roberto Clemente drawing that I got from Mike Hirsch. Oh. Yeah. He didn't do it, although he was a very talented artist. His dad was a very talented artist. But it's black and white. It's something that was used in a newspaper. And I've had it up forever because he probably got that for me 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. But since it's artistic, and he was so artistic, so it's one of the things I'll keep. It's, he saw it and knew that I was the Roberto Clemente guy. and Very thoughtful. Not to be maudlin, but I'm so glad I got to see Mike a couple of weeks before he passed way yeah. too early. Yeah. All right. Okay. What about Given? Y'all didn't say given. I don't know that I can give. If I give something random, then I'm going to get something back. I know, but if I give away, then they're going to say, thank you, what can I do for you? And if I say nothing, that's an invitation to do even more. (laughs) I'm I'm going to embarrass you. Because in 1998, we had some reasonably rough years as a company. And we had our annual Christmas holiday gathering. And Jim knew that morale wasn't good. We weren't making the money we used to make. And Jim, we weren't making money. We weren't making money at all. And, <laughs> but everybody's working just as hard. Yeah. And Jim, out of his pocket, which you can do when you're a private company, made sure we all got incredibly nice holiday bonuses that year. Right. They weren't incredibly nice. They were, it, was, they were, it, was, it was probably the second biggest bonus well, I ever got. You're so. really killing me now, Rich. <laughs> oh, and to show how Jim was when he sold the company, he made sure that every single person from the person who was hired at the warehouse two weeks before the company was sold, 
to the people who had been there the longest all got something. And that's a testament to Jim. Okay. But those aren't random acts of kindness. We had a really talented employee workforce. And I always believed in salary plus bonus. I don't like commissions as much. I like salary plus bonus, where at the end of the year, if somebody really worked hard, they weren't working toward a quota. They were just trying to really help the company be successful. And with the help of some of the leaders, we determined bonuses for each person. It wasn't proportional to salary always, but or, or hours worked even. It was the contribution. And so everybody got some. And if they didn't get anything, they shouldn't be there because we really wanted a team that would work. So I don't count that as random. Was it kind? I suppose it was kind, well, but it's a business thing. Uh, we talked about the problem with major league players and football, basketball players that get these long-term contracts and some parts of guaranteed money. I don't like that, but I do think that if you're not going to get a long-term contract, that if you have a good year, you ought to get a reward for it. And so that was my philosophy, but thanks for saying that, Rich. All right, so what hobby trends are you most excited about now? I'm excited about the diversity in the hobby. No. Demographic diversity? There's age diversity. There's gender diversity. There's racial diversity. There is so much diversity. There was a women of the hobby meeting at the National this year. And I saw a photo. It was like 60 people. Really exciting to see. I know when I go to Kyle show, I see people of all races. It's not white man show. It is all races, all groups, all denominations. And it's fun to see people come into the hobby, that it's not just the same ethnic group anymore. Yeah. Okay, I agree with that. But for me, I think it's the increase of technology coming along. And I think there's been two kinds of technologies coming along in the last two or three years, one of which is to take the hobby in a different direction, away from tangibility, and that really hasn't taken. And the other technological thrust is helping us to hobby the way we want to hobby better and faster and easier. And so some of these scanning technologies and assistance in grading, not necessarily computer grading, but assistance in grading. So that's gonna drive prices down, reduce the friction, make it easier to identify your cards, to sell your cards. I think that's great. I know our mutual friend, Jeremy Lee, had a venture capitalist on recently, and he said they were invested in 10 or 12 companies. And one of the things is it was exciting. And some of these concepts you don't even think about. You went to the Mint Collective. You saw things that probably I got an email from you when you came back. And I could tell from the email you were invigorated by what you saw at that event. And not everything's going to work in technology, as Jim says. But it's exciting to see. I got this from you. The whole idea of fractionalization began. And I mentioned about something with an art company that was valued with a billion with a beef. And you said, oh, I know those people. And it's okay. And when you said that was okay, I said, wait a second. I better rethink this in a hurry. It may not be what I do, but I better look again because there is something to be said for the fractionalization. The technology, it's all digital, but that doesn't mean it has to be ethereal. Not Ethereum, but ethereal. But it could be helping us hobby the way we want to hobby. And so that's the way I think it's moving. Some of these things that were these different going off on tangents, I don't think those have come together. I'm not a big fan of NFTs at this point. The fractional is securitized by the actual card. And so anything that has a physical card to it, I'm going to be more in favor of that and believe in that more. And aren't most of these fractional companies actually more regulated too to make it even better? Well, some are very regulated. Some are very regulated. And that makes it even safer for the people. Safer. Okay. Other than the 1% sale challenge that you've challenged yourself with, how else do you challenge yourself in the hobby? 
let me weave the 1% and Rich into my answer because I think Rich is included in this. And that is that I've probably bought more cards, more base cards this year than any other year in recent past because I bought some collections. And Rich, to his credit, is don't do that, has admonished me. <laughs> and so now I got a bunch of commons and uh, base cards, mostly star cards that I can try to put together on eBay. So I do think they'll eventually find their way out and I'm enjoying going through them. But it's a setback on the 1% if you more cards to it. But included in there, I'm not just buying lots of base cards. I'm buying a collection that has base cards in it. And so what I'm realizing, and Rich, again, would be happy about this, is that I think there's going to come a time, and it may be the clock striking midnight tonight or the end of this year, that no more base cards. That I really just can't buy base cards. I can only, when somebody says you can have the whole dollar box for X cents a card, I need to say no. And I say, no, I really just need to pick out the ones that I want because I don't need more cards. But that'll be really hard for me. Yeah. But that would be a way to have less cards is to not get new cards. <laughs> a novel idea. And I am selling them way faster than I'm buying them, but it depends on what my horizon is. I think I've got a number of years of active, having fun, buying and selling. But there may come a time next year, the year after, where it's no longer buying and selling. It's only selling. Basically, when I'm looking through a box of cards, I need to only buy the cards I haven't seen before. <laughs> the cards that I have seen before, I need to just pass them by, even yeah. if they're a good deal. What is the most underrated set of cards and why to each of you? There's a proxy for underrated, and that is what people are talking about. There's a lot of people going after what people are talking about. That tends to make higher demand and there can't be an underrated set if everybody's talking about how underrated it is. So the only way you can be an underrated set is for nobody to talk about it. And so if I talk about it, it will no longer be underrated. <laughs> so I don't really have a name of a set as much as any set that nobody's talking about. Yeah. I'm not talking about a junk set that's way overproduced, but something obscure, not plentiful enough that people make a market in it. 